Let us open our Bibles to the 19th Psalm to begin. Psalm 19. Let us have the same spirit that those brothers of ours had in Israel of old in Nehemiah chapter 8 as the Word of God is opened. You have it in your laps, which they did not. We are blessed above all peoples to have the Word of God so easily available that you can buy it at the dollar store. What a blessing, what a privilege to have it so easily available. But let it not be our curse because we do not give it the attention and affection and obedience that we should. Psalm 19 is a simple psalm, a psalm that is well known. The first six verses describe God's revelation of Himself in the natural creation. Verses 7 through 11 describe God's revelation of His will for us in His Word. In the first verse, and you know these verses well, the heavens declare the glory of God. A sermon is preached by the sun, the moon, and the stars. Verse 2 tells us, day unto day uttereth speech. There is a sermon given. Verse 3, there is no speech nor language. There is no tongue or dialect where this sermon is not heard. Verse 4, their line, that is a paragraph or a point in a sermon, is gone out through all the earth. Creation preaches the existence and the glory of God. Romans 1 would say that it describes the Godhead and the eternal power of the invisible God. And that's verses 1 through 6. We don't have time for more here. But beginning at verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. The written law. God's ordained rules for our conduct is perfect. It converts the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Both of those words, law and testimony, are referring to your Bible. They're referring to Scripture. And these words used by David here are going to be used by David in Psalm 119. Verse 8, the statutes. Again, a different word used to refer to the Bible. Our right, rejoicing the heart, the commandment. Again, another word representing the scriptures of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear, because that's where it's taught is in the scriptures, is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Six different terms used to describe the Bible and some of the wonderful features, benefits, and blessings of that Bible. Verse 10 tells you how valuable it should be to you. More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. The word of God that you hold in your hands should be of great value to you, value more valuable than any sum of money that could be given to you. And it should be sweeter than the sweetest delicacy that you can think of, which in this day was honey and the honeycomb. It should be sweet, pleasant, rejoicing your heart. A a, a dab of a honeycomb when you were famished or you were tired would lift your spirits by that infusion of sugar into your bloodstream. And when you read the Word of God, it should excite you. Amen. And the 11th verse says, Moreover, in addition to all the conversion and the truth that's revealed in verses 7 through 9 and 10, Moreover, by them is thy servant warned. It's how we're told to save ourselves from trouble in life. And in keeping of them, there is great reward. Amen. 
What else do you need to hear? There is great reward in keeping God's Word. He will bless you and make you great in your soul and or in your purse. He'll bless you abundantly if you delight in His Word. There is great reward in keeping Scripture. Let us turn all the way over to Second Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. The Bible is the next level of God's revelation to us after creation. Of course, there's conscience and there's providence in there, but in Psalm 19, it's limited to two things, creation and Scripture. So I'm just going to mention two. I've taught you the others from Romans chapter 1 several months ago. Now we come to another passage that I want to give you about the importance of God's Word before we get back to Psalm 119. I want to tell you this, there are churches all over America today, and it's the fastest growing religious phenomenon since 1901 when the charismatic movement started. And that is people who want to hear God's voice from heaven, or they want a vision, or they want a word of knowledge, or they want a word of wisdom. But the Bible tells us this comparison. Peter is writing, and Peter, with James and John, two fishermen buddies of his, who had also been called to be apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, went with Jesus in Matthew 17 up on a mountain where Jesus was transfigured before them and glorified. And with him in his glory appeared Moses and Elijah. Peter opened his mouth and said, Lord, this is awesome. It is good that we are here. Let us build three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And God thundered out of heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, hear ye Him. Peter, James, and John fell to the ground like dead men at the thundering voice of God from heaven as the Lord God of heaven exalted His Son above mere sinners named Moses and Elijah. Peter's going to tell you the story here but he's going to draw a point from it. I've preached it many times before. I will preach it again if God gives me breath. I'm thankful for God giving me this in 1983 and 1984 before I was ordained because without the Word of God, what does a man have to do in the pulpit? To tell you like Joel Osteen is telling you right now with his book that's just been released, every day can be Friday. He ought to be doing a commercial for TGI Fridays up there in Woodruff Road. Just stop on Joel Osteen and save your sermon. I'm speaking to myself. Your best life now. And he doesn't have a word in it from the Word of God. He wouldn't dare preach the commandments, the statutes, the precepts, and the judgments of God because it would crush His assembly down to the size of ours in one month if it was that big. I read to you in 2 Peter 1, and I hope you'll delight in these words. Let's read Peter describing that event. Verse 16. 2 Peter 1.16 For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. 
For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Now the best verse. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Two things out of this very quickly. We have also, in addition to that historical experience of hearing God's voice from heaven, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. And that word of prophecy is defined in the next verse as being God's scriptures. Your Bible is better than being with Moses and Elijah, James and John, and a glorified Lord Jesus Christ to hear God's voice from heaven. Right. That's what Peter's saying. Now, if I was saying this, you would say to me, and you could, and you should, and you would, well, that's because you've never heard God's voice from heaven. It's easy for you to say that God's word is better than God's voice from heaven, but this is a man that heard God's voice from heaven. And notice the comparison he made. We have also a more sure. If I were to tell you that I heard God's voice yesterday out on my deck, you would say, how... How much wine did you have to drink before you heard God's voice? Then you would want to know, are you sure you got it just right? Did you write it down? Are you sure it wasn't an airplane? Are you sure it wasn't a helicopter? We have a more sure word of prophecy right here in the Scriptures of God. Thank you, Lord, so much. Turn back a few pages. Nope, before you turn... The point, another point that I really want to get is in verse 19. After it says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. It says, whereunto, that is to that more sure scriptures, ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. We live in a dark place. The knowledge of man is dark. They do not know anything. They think we came from a Big Bang. They think we came from monkeys. They think that capital punishment is not a deterrent to murder. They think that we shouldn't discipline our children. They think that same-sex marriages are a good thing. They think that babies ought to be ripped apart by suction wands while they're in a woman's uterus. They're sick, depraved, profane, and in total darkness. And the more educated they get the more profane, ignorant they are. Whereunto ye do well. You want to do something well for yourself and your family and your marriage today? Ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. The Scriptures are a light from God to guide us and show us what is right and true while we live in this dark world. 
We're going to pass over 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that tells us the Scriptures are able to make the man of God perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. The Bible addresses every subject of any importance. And it has perfect answers for each one of them. A man learning this concise library of wisdom will exceed all others in his life. Just as Israel exceeded all other nations because they had the Bible and the other nations knew that they had superior wisdom. I'm going to pass over Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 6, and Deuteronomy 32 that where God told Israel, because I've given you my commandments and my statutes, because you have my word, the scriptures, it is your wisdom in the sight of the nations. It is your righteousness. It is for your good. It is your life. It made them a superior nation. It'll make you a superior man, a superior woman, a superior teenager, if you delight in God's word and pay attention to it. The divine library of 66 books has no competitor or peer. Its value is infinitely great. Yet this superlative blessing that we have in the Bible is only obtained by those that have the psalmist's character. If you don't find yourself lining up with the psalmist's attitude toward the Bible in Psalm 119, then the great reward that comes in Scripture is not yours. Because you have this on your coffee table or your nightstand or in your library or left in your car from Sunday to Sunday isn't going to do you any good. It doesn't matter if you go to bed at night and put it on your chest and sleep with it there. It is hearing it, reading it, paying attention to it, and obeying it, loving it, delighting in it, lifting it up, praising it, and exalting it, and speaking of it to other people, but which God will bless. Psalm 119 does not answer any of life's questions. It doesn't answer any philosophical or practical speculations. It rather exalts the answer book that has those things. We don't go to Psalm 119 to get answers to life's questions. We go to Psalm 119 to get excited about the answers to life's questions that are found in the other 1188 chapters of your King James Bible. Many wonderful things have been declared about this psalm, and since it's not our ability, be glad to admit that, or our intent to reproduce or to replace them, I'm not going to quote any. I'm just going to tell you that in your online Bible program, which each of you was given by this church, if you were to go to the Treasury of David in Psalm 119, you can read some wonderful, delightful, uplifting things that have been collected from the ages that men who love the Word of God have written about this particular psalm. And it's all there. I was sorely disappointed yesterday trying to find you an easier link. Everything that is in e-format on the Internet cheats you out of the treasury of David. The treasury of David is Charles Spurgeon's work of collecting every good thing that's ever been written about Psalm 100, about the Psalms up to the year 1880 called the Treasury of David. It was issued in eight volumes. It's on your online Bible in its entirety. There is not anything in its entirety on the web, on the web even though it's public domain material. Here we go. Let's go to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. You need to appreciate the Word of God before we even get to it by some of the other things the Word of God says. We started at Psalm 19 
Because 19 comes first on the number line before 119. Okay? I'm that simple. It comes first. There are three psalms about the Word of God. It is the first psalm, it is the 19th psalm, and it is the 119th psalm. One, psalm 119, it has 176 verses. I've told you before that when my father would have my brother and me read our Bibles through every year as children, we didn't look forward to the day that we were going to arrive at Psalm 119 and have to read our three chapters that day because it was going to take us forever to get through the one. Now I read some wonderful testimonies in preparing for this sermon about men who as children, and I'm telling you my own experience, didn't appreciate this psalm. But now in my older age, oh, what a fool! What a fool was I! I was as a beast before thee, as Asaph would say in Psalm 73. Now it's one of my favorites. If you don't know where to read in the Bible, go to Psalm 119. If you don't know how to pray or what to pray, go to Psalm 119. I would first of all go to the Psalms in both cases, but then I would go to Psalm 119 as one of the best of the Psalms. The spiritual level of this Psalm, the breadth, the depth, the beauty, the creativity, and the glory of this Psalm about the Word of God, which God has exalted above all His name, which is His greatest aspect of revelation of Himself, which is more sure than His voice from heaven, is described right here in this Psalm. You're going to see the attitude of a man who loves the Word of God. The subject matter is simple. The Bible. We're not going to have the word Bible in the whole psalm, though. It's the Scriptures. But we're not going to have the word Scripture or Scriptures in the whole psalm. David, like Psalm 19, isn't going to use the word Bible or Scripture or Scriptures. He's going to use the words way, Lord, law, word, judgment, statutes, precepts, commandments, testimonies, ordinances. 176 verses long, but so that you won't get overwhelmed and intimidated. It's broken into 22 sections. Thank you, Lord. 22 sections of 8 verses, which are digestible by anyone. Now, in the Hebrew language, which this psalm was written in, and this is of little value to you, because we have every word that God wanted us of His inspired words preserved to us in English. But I want you to know the beauty of it in Hebrew. In your Bibles, if you have a thorough Bible, and I'm not making fun of your Bible if it's not thorough, you will have a Hebrew letter over each of those sections in Psalm 119. Because there were 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and so the 176, which is 22 times 8, is broken up into 22 sections of 8 verses for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and every verse within a section started with that letter of that section. Now that's some pretty neat creative design, and it's very good for children to learn their ABCs when they were in Hebrew, to learn their ABCs right here. I was telling Brother Zach before we started this morning, that in my reading, there were some churches and denominations in the past who required their ministers to memorize Psalm 119 before they could ever be ordained. Wow. Now that's, that's pretty good. Amen. And there were mothers that taught their children Psalm 119 for their ABCs. Now in English, it's 22 times 8. And you can learn a Hebrew letter and say, Child, quote to me, Gimel. And that would give you a section of 8 verses to quote. Just an idea. 
to, to invite even children, every verse in Hebrew begins with that section's letter. It was just a neat arrangement that the Lord gave, and we shouldn't overlook it, but we don't need it because that doesn't affect the sense of the words at all. We have everything that God wanted us to have as far as what it says about the Word of God. The Bible is addressed in this psalm by law 25 times. Word, 38 times. Words, 4. Judgment, 4. Judgments, 18. Statutes, 22. Precepts, 21. Commandment, once. Commandments, 21 times. Testimony, once. Testimonies, 22 times. Way, 12 times. Ways, 6 times. And ordinances, 1 time. But there's no Bible, no Scripture, and no Scriptures. And I'm not going to take the time to try to show you some shades of difference between those words, except to say very quickly, some of them are pretty neat. Judgment and judgments. Those two words cover 22 of the verses in which God's word is described as God's judgments. A judgment is an opinion or a ruling by someone in authority that can settle the matter. It's exciting. Just to think about the definition of a judgment. Yes, I want God's opinion and God's ruling on every matter in life. And so it's called the judgments of the Lord. A testimony is a declaration of truth by an expert in a field. Praise God, it's the testimonies of the Lord. Is he an expert in his field? Is that wonderful? I mean, there are some shades of difference, but I'm watching an enemy back there on that back wall. And it's telling me you're going to have to look at the outline and think about it yourself. Because I'm going ahead. The Bible is described in this wonderful psalm of 176 verses as being truth, as being righteousness, as being good, and as representing God's faithfulness. If you want to see another breakdown, we've already had a man mentioned here today. His name, William Cooper or William Cowper, pronounce it any way you want. He's long dead. But William, the melancholy, the man who struggled with depression and discouragement at times, who was cast down severely in his soul at times, and wrote some of the hymns in our hymnal, he like he made this breakdown, and I'm not going to share much with you, because I just want to get right into the meat of the psalm. But he said every verse in this psalm, all 176, can be broken into three kinds. There are praises of God's Word. There are protestations, meaning affirmations or assertions of David's unfeigned affection toward it, and there are prayers for grace to conform his life to it. So there's praise of God's Word, there is affirmations of David's affection for it, and there are prayers that David would live it and keep it. And every verse would be put in one of those three categories. That would be a wonderful study itself, just to go through. Because you know what that would do? It would force you to interpret the sense and direction and intent of the verse in order to put it into a category. Psalm 119. I hope you can see the Hebrew letters. I hope you can see the 22 sections, the eight verses in each section. There's only one subject matter for the whole psalm. It is the Word of God. It is the Bible. It is God's Scriptures. The more sure word of prophecy. I'm going to take a survey with you of a few of its verses. We're going to take a break and we're going to come back here 
And the men of this church, those that want to participate, can jump up here, and I don't care if you just read it. If you just read the Word of God into my ears, I'm going to say amen, and I'm going to enjoy it, and so will the Lord. If you want to add a few sentences of comments around it, you're welcome to do it. But I want to give you the opportunity to delight in God's Word in public. I start with the first verse. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Amen. Jehovah's scriptures define the only perfect path and the only perfect course of life for those who travel the unpopular way of the straight and narrow that Jesus Christ taught and to keep themselves spotless and pure from all degrading events of life. Blessed are the undefiled in the way. You have to travel away through life. There is a course that you follow, and there are undefiled in that way. How are they undefiled? Because they walk in their way in the law of the Lord. They keep the Bible's commandments. And by keeping the Bible's commandments, the spots and stains, the faults and blemishes of others do not touch them because they keep the law of the Lord. So they are undefiled. They are pure. They are spotless. They are not messed up. Oh, I messed up, someone will say. But a man who's keeping the law of the Lord doesn't mess up. They're undefiled. And then it says with that first word of this psalm, blessed is their description by the God of heaven. They are blessed because they kept the law of God that kept them from spotting their life as they went through it as they walked in God's way, they obeyed His commandments, were kept free from all the blemishes, faults, scars and scabs, and stinking savers of foolishness. And they're blessed. And that's how we start out. What's the first word of the book of Psalms? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, and so forth. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Here's a man in verse 1 of Psalm 119 who delights in the law of the Lord. He walks in that law and he guards his way through life with the law of the Lord. He ends up undefiled and he's blessed in the sight of God. God's favor is upon him. The glorious consequences of being blessed by Jehovah, you enjoy his presence, you receive his approval, You find His favor in life. You have His power. His promises are for you. And what else could we say? Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Look at verse 35. Psalm 119 and verse 35. This one's a prayer. The first one was a praise. It was praising God's Word for the blessedness that it brings upon those who keep it. I'm just thinking momentarily here of William Cowper's distinctions in this psalm. Psalm 119 and verse 35. Make me to go in the path of Thy commandments, for therein do I delight. This is a prayer. 
That's why I said, when you don't know how to pray or what to pray for, and stop praying for a better job and more money, you're not going to get either if that's what you pray for. Pray for God to bless you in His Word like this prayer right here, and He'll take care of all that junk you're worried about. Can I prove that with a Bible? Here's how we prove it. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things that the Gentiles seek after shall be added unto you. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. You don't have to tell Him what's in your heart when you're thinking about junk and stuff. Tell Him what's in your heart about how much you love His Word. For therein do I delight, the psalmist said in his 35th verse. Make me, it's a prayer, without God's help and strength, we cannot, you cannot, and will not live by the Scriptures. Your flesh is too strong. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak to performance. The flesh lusteth against the Spirit so that she cannot do the things that she would. So we pray for God's enabling power and strength to be able to do it. So we need to pray to Him to ask for it. So we have here an example, when it comes to reading the Bible and hearing the Bible, the way that we put it into practice is to pray for God to make us keep it. You see, well, that sounds almost fatalistic. Oh, if the Lord would treat me fatalistically and make me to go in the way of His commandments, I would praise Him forever. Right. He's going to in heaven. I want Him to do so on earth. We are not fatalists. But oh, for these are words that are inspired. Make me. You say, well, I believe in free will. I'm a free will Baptist. Well, there's not much free will here. David didn't want his will to be free. He wanted his will to be made, to go in the way of God's commandments. Make me love my wife. Make me train my children. Make me pray for our president. Make me keep the imaginations of my heart down. Make me guard my tongue and my lips. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments. We have to pray for the power to do so. For therein do I delight. We bring our petition to the Lord by declaring our prayer is due to our love of the way of righteousness. So we we secure God's answer to our prayer by telling Him that I make this prayer, for therein do I delight. When I ask you, Lord, to make me go in the way of your commandments, it's because I delight in those ways. And we obtain His favorable response that way. And we tell him that our prayer is due for a noble reason, because we love the righteousness of his ways. Verse 96. Verse 96. I have seen an end of all perfection, but thy commandment is exceeding broad. David had witnessed as king and a very rich man, the best life has to offer. I have seen all perfection. He had seen the best plans and efforts of men in various fields of endeavor. But all those best, perfect, they appeared perfect, plans failed to satisfy, did not fulfill the ambitions or desires of their inventors or executors did not accomplish what was designed to be accomplished and did not endure 
as long as they had hoped it would endure. Because David had seen an end of it all. It never worked out and got to a finished conclusion where it fulfilled and satisfied and accomplished and endured like they had hoped it would. I've seen all perfection. I have seen the best laid military plans. I have seen the best laid building plans. I have seen the most romantic relationships. I have seen everything done as well and as complete and as perfect as men can do it. But in every case, I've seen the end of it. It didn't reach its desired target. I have seen an end of all perfection. But an inspired disjunctive, meaning the next clause is in opposition to what David has just said. While all the things that I have witnessed in my life, even though they were well laid, did not accomplish their desired purpose, I have seen something that does. It's exceeding broad. But thy commandment is exceeding broad. When it's exceeding, that means it is more than and above and beyond the intentions, the hopes, the plans, the the satisfaction, the fulfillment, and enduring. God's Word exceeds anything that you can think or expect from it. Different than everything else in life. Everything else you try in life, young men, young women, is going to disappoint you because you're going to find an end to all perfection. You say, I'm going to find the perfect house. As soon as you buy it and walk through it, you'll know it's not perfect. Now, because you're an ignorant human being, before you buy it, you may think it's perfect. You may walk around a car and say, this car is perfect. As soon as you buy it and take it home, knowing that the depreciation is now in your wallet, you'll see all of its imperfections. Have, is there anybody in here old enough to have learned that lesson? Amen. That before you buy something, you can't see it as clearly as after you buy it? <laughs> oh, that's just human nature. It just shows how weak we are. And it's, I'm trying to help you understand this verse. But thy commandment is exceeding broad. Amen. That's not just a little broad. It's not just a whole lot broad. It exceeds any dimensions that you think you can put on it. You open the Word of God and you think, well, I don't know what the Bible can do for me, but it might be able to do a little bit for me. No, it's exceeding broad. It'll exceed anything you expect from it. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above what we ask or think. The only reason there's an L-Y added there is to make it an adjective or adverb in over there in Ephesians chapter 3. Let's go to verse 106. Psalm 119, 106. I have sworn, and I will perform it, that I will keep thy righteous judgments. This is just a variety of verses from Psalm 119. I have sworn, and I will perform it, that I will keep thy righteous judgments. It is better not to vow, as Ecclesiastes tells us, than to vow and not pay. God doesn't require very many vows, but whether required or not, every oath or vow or swearing that we do must be performed. Every commitment must be kept. And so David admits that right here in the first half of this verse. I have sworn and I will perform it. Sometimes when we're in trouble, sometimes when we're afraid, sometimes when we don't see the future, we may promise God something. And David 
apparently from this passage and others, had made some oaths to the Lord, and he was going to perform them. And I want to take this text and apply it to you this way. The great oath for Christians is their baptism. You take the name of the Lord Jesus Christ upon you according to his word, in which you are going to rise to walk in newness of life. You are burying your old man like the Lord Jesus Christ was buried in the ground, and you rise up to live a resurrected life that looks like his life. And you do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Hands are raised to heaven and ministers in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the authority of his to baptize. Declare that of you as you go under the water and come out of the water. And they won't even put you in the water unless you have committed yourself toward that end. I ask you, since the lifestyle of the Lord Jesus Christ is found in the Bible, I ask you, are you living up to your baptism? It appalls me. It angers me when I see those that have been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ not fulfilling their vows and their commitments made in the waters of baptism. I have sworn, and I will perform it, that I will keep thy righteous judgments. These statements are so short, and these statements have some measure of inspired obscurity to them that we can take them and apply them, oh, like verse 96 taught us, Thy commandment is exceeding broad. When you were baptized, that was a very formal commitment of yourself to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the answer of a conscience made good by His gospel, and it was a promise in the name of the Lord Jesus that you were going to live a resurrected life. To walk away from that is to violate this completely. And I hope that we'll be thinking about the fact that we are already committed to keeping the law of the Lord by that oath. David David was sworn, and he would perform it, that he would keep his righteous judgments. David had told the Lord, I will obey you. I will obey your word. And he had done it in such a way that it was an oath upon him. But he was going to perform it. May the Lord bless us to perform ours. One fifteen. Depart from me. Ye evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. The righteous have no use for the wicked. David chose to eliminate them from his life as well as he could, and there is no loss but always gain when those who do not want to follow Scripture disappear. David didn't want them in his life. You know, there's a whole psalm about this that we refer to often, Psalm 101 where David didn't want any evildoers in his household. He didn't want them serving him. He didn't want them in his family. He wanted those who feared the Lord to be his companions. And so here he's praying in light of a rule that we know. Evil communications corrupt good manners. So he prays in 115, Depart from me, ye evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. I'm going to be living a different lifestyle than you, so stay away from me. My agenda is different than your agenda, so stay away from me. I am not going to let you corrupt me or lead me down the primrose path of your ideas. A companion of fools is going to end up destroyed. A companion of wise men will be wiser. And so here we have the psalmist telling us how important it was for your language to hang out with those who love God's Word and keep His commandments. 
That's who they were going to choose. That's who David was going to choose to be his friends. You should be selective in your friends. It doesn't matter if somebody likes you or not. You need to find out those who love God or not. And those who love God should be your friends. For I will keep the commandments of my God. I am not going to let you mess me up, slow me down, distract me, or divert me. I don't care about your ideas or your opinions. I'm going to follow the Word of God. Look at 119. Psalm 119, 119. The 119th verse of the 119th Psalm. Thou puttest away all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love thy testimonies. Brethren, there is justice and vengeance in the earth and in heaven. Rebels and sinners shall surely be crushed. Not one shall escape. This is the perfect righteousness and the holy integrity of our Lord Jehovah. Verse 119, Thou puttest away all the wicked of the earth like dross. That's the junk. That's the scum that comes up from smelting a precious metal. That's the stuff that's worthless. God just throws it away and discards it. That is the wicked of the earth. I'm so thankful to know a God like that that judges in the earth. All of Psalm 58 is dedicated to this theme so that it ends up in the last verse. This is how the righteous know that there's a God in heaven by the way He destroys the wicked. Now based on having a God like that, it's easy to read His Word. I am so tired of a judicial system that lets men get away with sin. I'm so tired with schools and a military and every other form of authority and weak fathers who don't enforce godliness on their families. I'm sick of it. Who wants to read any of them? None of them understand authority. None none of them understand the application of righteousness. None of them understand the execution of judgment against sinners. But God does. So instead of reading the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or any other periodical of man, we get to read the Bible. And it's wonderful to read the Bible. And so David would say, Therefore I love thy testimonies. Are you able to make the connection? Therefore. It is for this reason that I love your word, because when I read in your word, you are a God of such integrity and such power and such righteousness, you are going to punish every evildoer without exception. Oh, that's exciting. Every time you pick up the paper and some criminal is getting off with a crime again. Oh, but never with the Lord. You know, I get so sick of reading them. They can, they can write a a 1200 page manual on the enforcement of civil justice. They don't know what they're talking about. You want justice? It's right here. Like draws. Junk. Flush them. And when you read that, and you find out that God's like that, and He's written this book, then I love His law. He's going to enforce it on everyone. It's just not a nice theory. It's not just a nice idea. It's just not a possible philosophy. It's the way that the universe is run. Therefore, I love thy testimonies. Look at 141. 119 and 141. I am small and despised. Look at the variety. Yet do not I forget thy precepts. 
I am small and despised. You know, in reality, we're pretty small and pretty despised. By our enemies, we're pretty small and pretty despised. And sometimes in our own thoughts, we're pretty small and pretty despised. And for those of you that have lots of thoughts about being small and despised, I want you, I want to give you 141. Yet, yet, a disjunctive like but, yet, do not I forget thy precepts. No matter how insignificant my life may seem and no matter how much I fail, I'm not going to forget your precepts. Because the, the recipe for my greatness and the comfort for my greatness and the, the rock for my feet and the foundation for my future is found in your word. So I don't forget your precepts. 119 and 141. In spite of reality, enemies, and negative thinking, the psalmist put it, the psalmist put his purpose and worth in remembering and keeping the precepts of Scripture. For that made him great. And it comforted him and strengthened him in his inner man. 144. Psalm 119 and 144. The righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding and I shall live. The Scriptures are declarations of truth and wisdom that are always relevant and are totally timeless. They do not change with an author's new perspective or a new degree. It's pitiful how books change. And they do not change with new generations of men. God's commandments and God's precepts never change. They're always relevant. The way they said a marriage should exist in the Old Testament 3,000, 4,000 years ago is still the way a marriage should take place today. Child training taught by Solomon in 1000 B.C. is what America needs in 2011. It never changes. The righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. It doesn't alter. It doesn't even wax and wane. It's just always maximum righteousness in any generation, for any situation. God's Word is the final and the only and the perfect answer. Praise His glorious name. Understanding is a gift from heaven, so look at the prayer. Give me understanding. Understanding God's Word takes work. It takes His blessing. Jesus said to Simon Peter when Simon Peter properly identified Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. He said, Simon, flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So we better have many prayers like this. Give me understanding. But notice, give me understanding in verse 144, and I shall live. If God will give us understanding of the righteousness of His commandments, it will save us from doing things that will bring a premature death. And... Inspired ambiguity, allowing us to see another sense, and it will help us to really live. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. There is living, and then there is really living, and there is abundant living. And how do you get that? God's Word. 144. The righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. The righteousness, the value, the perfectness of God's commandments or his testimonies, whatever, his scripture, his Bible, never changes. But we need to understand it. And by understanding it, it's implied here and assumed that we're going to keep it, and that's the good life. Amen. That's really living. 
159. 159. Consider how I love thy precepts. Quicken me, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness. The first, there's two love. There's two loves. Two loves sounds like a tennis score. Sort of. There's two loves here in Psalm 119 and verse 159. First of all, it's David's love for God's Word. Consider how I love thy precepts. The first love is David's love for Scripture. And on that basis, he calls for God to measure it and to reward it. That's what he meant by the word consider, which shows our gracious God and His exaltation of Scripture. Would God actually consider us? To consider someone is to stop, to slow down, and to focus on them. To consider a thing is to think about it, to measure it, to analyze it. Would God slow down, stop, focus on us, and and think about us, and analyze us? Yes, He does. Remember in Psalm 138, He hath respect unto the lowly. He's able to see and to show respect toward them. Consider, Lord, how I love thy precepts. David's love for God's word. You can't ever pray this unless you love God's word. But if you love God's word, and that's what we want to do today, is stir up ourselves to love God's word so that we can then pray, consider us, O Lord, that there isn't a congregation like us in the earth. Not for our honor and glory, but for the honor and glory of thy precious word. Consider us how we love thy law. Then there's another love. Quicken me, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness. It's God's kindness and it's God's love toward David that David then appealed to, to quicken him. Do you ever feel dead? The wife says, what's wrong? I just feel dead. That's why the word quicken is in Psalm 119 and in some other psalms. What does the word quicken mean? To make alive. Like in Ephesians chapter 2 when it describes regeneration as quickening, it means to make alive. When we feel dead, when we feel discouraged, when we feel defeated, when we feel weak, we need God to quicken us. To revive us again is what it means. To make us alive again. To give us strength and vitality. To lift up our spirits. And that prayer is based on God's love for David. But it was prefaced by God's love for, I mean, David's love for God's word. This is how we look at these little capsule statements about scripture and figure them out and see the prayer, the praise, and the declarations of God's word. Consider how I love thy precepts. You can't pray it unless you're doing it. Quicken me, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness, based on David's delight. Look at 160. Thy word is true. From the beginning. And every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. I'm not going to spend much time here just to say it's the same thing that I pointed out in a previous one. And that is, God's word is always relevant. There are certain ways of interpreting scripture done by skeptical unbelievers. They claim to be believers in which they take the Word of God and try to slice it and dice it for particular cultures that that Word was written for. No way. There are only ancillary or indirect or circumstantial aspects of culture that affect God's Word. The righteousness of God's Word never changes. Thy Word is true from the beginning. If it says in Genesis chapter 3 
that man is going to have to earn a living by the sweat of his brow, and that God has multiplied the sorrow and conception of women, and that men shall rule over women, and a woman, a wife's desires shall be to her husband, those things are true. Even if it was written in Genesis chapter 3. And they're just as true in 2011 as they were in 797 A.D. and 816 B.C. Thy word is true from the beginning. We do not change. That's something about us. We want to tell the Lord today. Lord, we live in the advanced 21st century. The enlightened 21st century, Lord. But we believe that it's still a dark place. And in fact, as we look around, it's darker than ever. And your word giveth light. Because your word is true and it never changes. Child discipline is the same today as it was 500 years ago, as it was 5,000 years ago. And so on and so forth. And we don't have time to illustrate it with a thousand different topics. 161, princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. It's a great calamity when those that are in power persecute unjustly, for they have the power to corrupt justice and they have the power to cause pain, which David and our Lord realized often. David suffered at the hands of King Saul. Jesus suffered at the hands of King Herod, Pontius Pilate, and the rulers of the Jews. But in both such calamities, they reverently rejoiced in Scripture. For in them, David saw the sure mercies of David, that no matter what Saul was doing to him, no matter what Adonijah attempted, no matter what Absalom accomplished, God was still going to have him and his son on his throne. Isn't that wonderful? Princes have persecuted me without a cause. But my heart standeth in awe of thy word. And the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, knowing that at the right hand of God there were pleasures forevermore. And how did he know that? How did he know, how did he know that? Because he read the Psalms. It was in Psalm 16. The Lord is always before my face, and I have set him at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Isn't that? Now the Lord was torn. They tore him to shreds. They tore his ministry to shreds. They blasphemed him. They dared him. But he knew that the right hand of God, there were pleasures forevermore. Where are you going to find that kind of comfort? My wife was talking to me about having read this, like I hope that all of you have as well. How many times David mentions his enemies? Right. And there's comfort in that. You know, if you're going to be godly, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You're going to have enemies. David had enemies, but the Word of God was his delight. And that's what he stood in awe of, and that comforted him greatly. 162, is this true of you? I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. There's a protestation, or that's an affirmation or assertion by David that he loved God's word. I rejoice at it as one that findeth great spoil. Do you get that excited about God's Word? Some of you may think that I'm a little twisted. And I don't know. I hope you don't. I hope you're wishing I would do it more. But why did I send you an email from a young man in Singapore because he had found six more single-word arguments in the New Testament to add to our nine? Why did I send that to you? Why did I mention it publicly? Why did I mention it at the men's meeting? 
why did I say something crazy like, should we send him a thousand dollars for each one? Why did I say that? Because I'll tell you it's worth ten to me and I was looking for a bargain. Right. Do you get excited like that about God's word? Amen. Every subject. Right. Every subject. You know, you read about somebody that's that's finally been put to death down in Texas, you know, and it, it only took them 11 years to do it. Bless their hearts. They, they are a tough state. The Alamo state. It takes 11 years. to put. It should take about 11 minutes. Right. Okay, if you believe in a fair trial that even somebody that's been caught on film and, and viewed by 10 policemen murdered somebody ought to get a fair trial, we'll give you 11 days. They ought to be put to death. You know, does, is there a Bible verse about that? Because you can throw anything at me, and if, if I can't come up with a Bible verse, it's my fault, not God's Word's fault. That's right. It's my fault. But it says over in the book of Ecclesiastes, because sentence against evil is not executed speedily, the heart of men is set in them to do it. That's right. Eleven years, nobody can remember it. What happened? Just on and on, the Bible goes, I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. If you, for some reason, in some way, and I don't even want to tell you about being Jed Clampett, are out shooting for food in your backyard, and up comes a bubbling crude. Why can I remember that from 30 years ago? I haven't watched it in 30 years. You know what I'm talking about? Beverly Hillbillies, up from the ground comes a bubbling crude, and he moves off to Beverly Hills and lives in that mansion. Okay, you were, you were to find great spoil and all of a sudden be a millionaire. You got, your faces would be glowing. You'd have a bounce in your step. Your vertical jump would increase by six inches in one day without exercise. Because you'd have some money as one that findeth great spoil. But do you get as excited about the Word of God? Amen. What subject? Come on. Reformed Baptist. Hmm. We have Hebrews 9.10 that says there's a reformation that we came out of, but it's a different reformation. What does that word mean to you? It's worth another thousand. Amen. I'm a poor man. I'm a debtor to God because he's my creditor. He's given me his word. Amen. I owe him for all of it. Right. 1 Peter 3.21, three proofs about the three different, three of the five aspects about baptism in one verse. Anyway, do you rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil? Do you get as excited as if you became an instant millionaire and wouldn't have to work for the rest of your life? Amen, brother. What a problem. If you don't delight in God's word like this, then you're not like the psalmist and the blessings don't come to you. That, that first word, blessed in verse 1, isn't yours if you don't get excited like David got excited. 165, great peace. Oh, don't we all want that? Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. The great gift of great peace is for lovers of Scripture. For it is in Scripture where God's wisdom for dilemmas is found. His presence for loneliness, His protection for dangers, and His promises for discouragement are all found. Great peace is for them that love God's Word. They will find it in Scripture, and God will bless them supernaturally with it by His Spirit for loving His Scripture. The only perfect foundation for your thoughts, speech, and actions is Scripture. And if you'll follow Scripture, then you can be saved from all the cavils and accusations of your enemies 
and the occasions to justify such accusations because you keep yourself by God's Word. 168. I have kept thy precepts and thy testimonies, for all my ways are before thee. I want to share this one with you for a little bit of inspired ambiguity. When I say inspired ambiguity, I mean when God wrote His Word in such a way that due to a limited context and the words that He chose, it can be run several different ways, all of which line up with the Word of God. I have kept thy precepts and thy testimonies. Lord, and I've done that because I know that you're omniscient and you see all my ways. I have kept thy precepts and thy testimonies, Lord, because you see all my ways. Look at them and know that I truly have kept them and I love thee. 175. Let my soul live and it shall praise thee and let thy judgments help me. The highest goal and honor of a life is to praise its Creator and Savior. That is the highest goal for your life, is to praise your Creator and your Lord Jesus Christ. And it is this holy reasoning that brings God's greatest deliverances to His people. Look at that 175th verse. Why are you alive? To get your CPA? I didn't mean to focus any attention on you, Mark. Let my soul live, and it shall praise thee. Life is to praise Him. We were created for Him. We were created for His pleasure. Let me live. You know, David David would often reason with the Lord, if you'll save me, I can praise you. My tongue doesn't work in the grave. Hezekiah did the same thing. Isaiah 38, verses 18 and 19. Tongue can't praise you in the grave. You give me life. I'll declare your truth to my children's children. Let my soul live, and it shall praise thee, and let thy judgments help me. By inspired ambiguity and breadth, which is exceeding broad of Scripture, we see David the psalmist here asking for his providence to protect him and his word to guide and instruct him. When it says, let thy judgments Those could be God's judgments upon his enemies by destroying them. Help, David. And also, let thy judgments, which are thy scriptures, guide me and teach me in the way that I should go. And that would help me as well. It's all there. Because it's this psalm that tells us God's word is exceeding broad. When you don't know where to read, try the psalms. And if you don't know where to turn the psalms, go to 119. When you don't know what to pray, go to the psalms. Many of them are prayers. And if you don't know which psalm to turn to, go to 119 and pick one of these. Get down on your knees and read it to the Lord and take it apart word by word and tell Him that is you and that you need Him that way. Will you consider this psalm for its spiritual content and intent to perfect your heart? Could you take one verse a morning? It'll get you through half of a year and meditate upon it to learn to love all of Scripture. We declare and defend the King James Bible as the inspired and preserved scriptures. But here's a godly heart that we've just taken a survey of and how much he loved all the words and the commandments and the precepts of those scriptures. Let's not just be loud and strong defenders of the King James Bible. Let's be faithful and long obeyers, delighters, in the King James Bible. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.